Welcome to another interview of Israel Tech. Today I have with me Gil Shai, a venture partner at Maron Capital. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Awesome. So really what I have you on was unique is that you're a serial entrepreneur. You've founded a few companies. You had a couple exits. You're an angel investor, including some of those that have been sold. And now for the last nine months or so, you're doing climate tech at Maron. So that's like a lot of experience to unpack. And so... Tell us, how does one career end up from, let's start with how you got to Maroon, because it was only nine or 10 months ago, it was less than a year ago. How does a career go from being a founder, someone that's able to acquire things um, and get your companies acquired and end up in VC? Tell us about that transition, and then we'll go back and talk about the way the companies that you founded. Yeah, sure. So uh, I think that uh, what happened is basically when I was um, during and after being acquired at, uh, by Amazon Web Services, and during when I was in Clarendur, I kind of thought about what I'm going to do next. And um, when was this? That was around, I mean, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I uh, didn't know exactly what I'm going to do, but I kind of understood that uh, probably after Clarendur, I'm going to do something else. So once we got acquired during the four years that I was uh, working at Amazon Web Services, I had a lot of time to, to think. And basically, um, started evolving from let's, some, let's do something which is uh, around do good um, uh, into climate, which s- sounded to me at the time, and I'm, I'm sure of it right now as well, that it's one of the biggest problems we have right now, and anything I can do in that, uh, in that place would be, um, would be great. Uh, during the Amazon years, I also uh, started angel investing. So that brought me pretty nicely into the world of investing. Wait, how does one get into angel investing? Like, was it, who do you need to know? What do you tell us if one says, I would like to get into angel investing? How does one get into angel investing? Yeah, it's great. It, it seems great we, people talk about it, like, how do you get there? Because one of the goals we're trying to do here is we're trying to make kind of the whole ecosystem a little bit more accessible. Yeah, that's a great question. So. First of all, you have to have money, right? Right, okay. <laughs> That's the basic <laughs> thing. How do you make money? <laughs> so, yeah. So, after two acquisitions, I was in a good place in that regard. Awesome. Then the networking connections that we had, I'm usually um, uh, working together with my one of my partners, uh, Ophir Ehrlich. Um, we basically had a pretty big network between us. And... Um, and that brings you, you know, uh, friends of friends, they, they start up companies, they hear about you. Um, I, I'm, I'm being doing uh, mentoring for many years now. I mean, ever since I think 2012 or something, uh, doing mentoring. So people hear from that department and you start getting uh, people that are asking if you want to invest. Eventually, you know, there you already have a good eye for good entrepreneurs after you sold two companies. So uh-huh. and you've seen a lot of things. So you start, you know, you, you say this I do, this I don't, and you start having a portfolio and you start having connections with other VCs. And that's how it was, pretty it, much. What, when you say you have a good eye, I understand mm-hmm. a lot of that's kind of intuition and experience. What yeah. are some things people should keep an eye an eye out for that would say this might be someone worthwhile to invest in or maybe some red flags that these are some things to avoid or look for look more into? Yeah, so so the good eye is intuition, but it's based on a lot of knowledge, right? After you found two companies and you and they're successful and you see a lot of entrepreneurs and you mentor a lot of these, you kind of get uh, a feel of, of the, the things you need to look at. And, and my main focus is, so the biggest focus is teams. Uh, I want to have the right team. It has to be complementary. It has to be really top, top tier in every dimension. 
and they have to collaborate well together and, and you know, have kind of a good, uh, good relationship and so on and so forth. That's the most important. Then you want to see, uh, you want to see a big market, which is not surprising. And then you see a really good uh, product for that market. So, mm. and the product is always a mix between the team, which is a really good team. And so they are able to create this product and um, you want to see that they're going the right way and they can produce that. So you're an angel investor, but let's take you back. You talk about all the connections that you need in order to get to that. At the very beginning, you were, you did a lot of software in the IDF and in the Air Force, right? Right. So maybe you can talk us about how one kind of takes what they do in the military to make the most of it uh, and how maybe they can use that to be able to, to build such a successful entrepreneurial career like you did. Yeah, so I think around, uh, I was six years in the Air Force. I think around the uh, last three years, I did some cool things with, uh, back then it was pretty new, C++ and, uh, and uh, AIX, which was IBM computers. Very long time. Uh -huh. Uh, so you can tell uh, that I'm not very young. Uh, back then, we did pretty, pretty interesting things. Um, we used smart cards at the day. It was pretty innovative. And we had, uh, you know, I had a really good team leader uh, and we, we got along and we did some interesting things. One, one of the interesting things that we did is that we had, a, uh, we had a security system and part of it was done by a civilian uh, company. Um, and we didn't like it. It wasn't that good. Um, and well, what didn't you like about it? It has a lot of bugs. It the was bugs. very slow right. and that type of stuff. And, and we, um, my team leader basically told me, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's talk to our commanding officers and make sure that, uh, and ask them if we can do it by ourselves. Um, and uh, we talked to them and said, no, uh, you don't have time. It's going to take you a long time. There's all sorts of PhDs on that company. Uh. You're never going to match it, blah, blah, blah. And we decided, we, we just decided we took, uh, we were three people. We decided to just do it on the weekends and long hours after, after, after we finished the, the day. Um, we brought it into a prototype and, uh, and they liked it so much that they let us uh, do the whole project. We that's eventually, awesome. Yeah. So th th that's one of these things I find so unique about our ecosystem is that you, they said no. Okay, you're... 21, you said three years in or something like that, 22? 24. 24, uh, okay, then mm -hmm. you're like, screw it, we'll do it ourselves without you. When you've not much time in the army anyway, right? Not much sleep. Mm -hmm. You do it anyway, and then you still showed it to them, and then they accepted it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, like, I think that's just incredibly unique. Generally, you don't, you don't really get that. I don't think you would get that from any other cultures, the fact that they rejected, but then came and accepted it, or the fact right. that you had the courage to go and do it. Right, that, that's the entrepreneurial spirit. Right. I think we have it pretty early you, on. You know what I think that kind of captures in a sense is that thing that you said, um, from my experience, is that people say, oh, they have a PhD, the people with PhDs, and I find the exact opposite. Their problem is they're so programmed, they're so, they have such tunnel vision that they don't know how to think outside of the box, how to do things outside of what they were, uh, I would say taught, but told in school. I find almost the more degrees you have, the less critical, yeah. critical thinking you have. Is kind of so, you know, I find there's, there's an inverse relationship. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that... Uh, you can say that American colleges, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that one of the best things in uh, Israelis is that really they, we always find ways to do things better. We always find things to cut corners, which, by the way, has its disadvantages as well. But in entrepreneurial culture, it's, it's mainly really, really good. 
So after you developed this, so with two of the people you're not, did you, after you left, what did you do? Did you continue to work with yeah, your so friends? It, what happened? So yeah, so uh, that's uh, funny you're asking, but one of my, the, the team leader itself, himself actually, he, he started working for a company back then, which was called Exact Technologies. Uh -huh. uh, and he said, hey, uh, why don't you join us? And really like, obviously I liked him, he's still a friend. Right. And uh, I liked the culture, I met the co-founders there. Uh -huh. And um, and that's where I started my new, my first uh, company back, uh, actually. It was 1998, uh, back in the, just in the bubble area. Yeah, good times. And it was crazy, yeah. It's, it's interesting that like, um, do you think you would be able to find an opportunity if you didn't have a friend that pulled you in or someone you knew with your network? Like if you were to just, let's say, I know now the economic opportunities in 1998 are a joke compared to today, right? We're talking uh, over 25 years ago. Do you think people would have been able to find opportunities for themselves then? And do you think it's changed now that like you come out of the army, let's say you don't have a network. Would it be difficult to find opportunities in your opinion? Well, I think back then I would probably find work. I think that... Uh, any person back then who had a really computer science degree and some experience, it was, again, in the bubble area, right. era, you, bubble. You, would, uh, you would get a job, but it's always... For a, a couple of years until the Yeah, exactly, <laughs> till the crash. Till the crash. Where it became uh, <laughs> difficult again. But from my experience, first of all, if you're, if you're top tier, you'll always find something. Right. Even if you don't have any network, it just, you know, people top tier, they just find yeah. jobs. You always look for really top tier people around the, uh, the ecosystem. And second, um, uh, I think that um, it's becoming, it really depends on the economic state uh, at that particular period. But back then it was really good. Right now it's like mediocre, it's not great. Uh -huh. So it's more difficult. And the more you have network, I mean, I think network probably got me a lot of the things that I have today is, is like network and people I know and connecting from one place to another and not being shy about approaching people and asking for help or questions and so on, that, that's in, invaluable. So I think that the network effect is, is crazy for, for high tech. So after, was it called exact, was software? Was exact technology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. where, where did you, how did you use your, where'd you go from there? Yeah, so, um, so again, network again, right? Uh, so after exact, at some point it became a little bit, um, I found that it was a little bit boring. I, I, uh, at that point, I wanted to uh, develop technologically. Um, and uh, one of the, and I just joined a company which was the, the VPRD was a previous pre VPRD at Exact Technology. So again, the network effect got to my next startup. Um, oh, who found who? Were you looking to leave? Did they go and then they reached out to you? Explain to I, us kind of just people. I wanted understand. to leave. I yeah. wanted to leave and I heard about. Um, the guy landing up in that company, it was called Savantic Systems. Um, and I just um, asked if they were looking for uh, team leaders and so on. And, and they were. And they were. I mean, eventually, yes. Would you, was, was a formal interview needed or but because you no. worked so closely? I mean, I just uh, just talked to the um, to the team leader back then or uh, he just interviewed me. Um, right. And, uh, just to make sure you're not too crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... Um, and that's it, but it was very shallow. I mean, there wasn't uh -huh. need for uh, big interviews. Again, uh, uh -huh. the, the VPRD already knew me. Right. Do you think, and how long ago was that? When was that? That was 2001, uh -huh. roughly. So 20 something years ago. And then from there, did you go and found Web? No, I still had it. Um, that company was shut down, but uh -huh. I met a really 
really good people there. I mean, the team leader back then was uh, Eden Shochat from Aleph, Aleph uh, VC. And uh, there were a lot of uh, great guys there. Uh, but back then I did one, one year in a company called Go Networks. Uh -huh. Again, uh, which was uh, interesting for me technologically. What do you um, mean? What interests you? It was in the world of Wi-Fi and connecting Wi-Fi um, um, in a large uh, area versus just a small area. Back then, Wi-Fi was very, pretty new. So it was interesting, uh, hardware and software together. And I found it, uh, I really liked the team. I mean, the people that I met seemed like really strong. Um, they were from the 8-1, a lot from the 8-1 uh, unit, from the Israeli intelligence. Pretty smart guys hardware and software. So I just decided to join again for uh, learning some more technology at that time. So from there, you're there for a year. And then how do you go from Wi-Fi connectivity? Does it, does the different technologies when it comes to software, how much does it matter your experience if let's say you're doing Wi-Fi or other kind of telecom or, or security or I, does, does experience cross over? Like, is it not, is it kind of like niche agnostic? I mean, there are some things experience-wise which are niche uh, which are niche dependent. But then, um, if you're smart, then you can move from one domain to another really uh -huh. easily. And back then, I really liked tech. I just wanted to code all day and you know manage teams, manage R and D. That's what did all you I like wanted. more? Work coding or working and managing other people? Yeah. So at that point, I started switching to the world of uh, managerial side. Um, and that was around up until 2005. Um, and that's pretty much the reason why I left Go Networks. I decided that I pretty much uh, done with uh, being only tech. And uh, my friend, again, uh, one of my friends from another company, from, uh, he used to work in uh, Exact Technologies uh -huh. back in the day. He said, yeah, hey, It's amazing how it just. This is the theme yeah. of Israel Tech is, oh yeah, then someone I worked with eight years ago or my friend's best friend, my friend's brother in the army ended up co-founding. Yeah, I can tell yeah. you I only interviewed one time in my life for a company. That's the only time. Wow. I always moved and how, from companies like, to companies. Like eight companies, 10 companies? Yeah, I mean, two of them I founded myself. Right. Um, Technically, but, you have to interview your co-founders. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. we'll get to that. But uh, yeah, I, I don't remember interviewing except for one time. Um, when Cervantes was, was shut down, I had to, I looked for, for work and uh, I, I interviewed back then. But eventually, most of, the, the, most of my life, I just uh, went from company to company just by knowing people or people calling me in. And, and, um, and in 2005, I decided to leap from technology to business, which was, um, again, my friend from Exact Technology said there's a really interesting role in a big company called Amdocs. Um, everybody knows Amdocs, yep. I don't think I need to say anything. Uh, uh, professional services, project management, all, all sorts of stuff like that, customers and so on. And I just decided to leave Go Networks um, and start my, my, you know, my, my journey into understanding business better. So let, let's unpack that for a bit, because there's a lot of people that I know are in tech, or actually not just in tech, working in, in anything. And they say, I want to go more into business in general, and maybe more with people and ideas and the, the challenge of building and maybe owning the feeling like they have an ownership, a more of an ownership stake. What advice would you give to people that 
want to make that leap that have no idea what that looks like? Yeah, so a couple of advice, uh, I think. Uh, one is um, I, I would read a couple of books uh, before I would uh, go there just to understand what it means. Um, I had uh, the luxury of spending time with business people before because I worked in startups. So you, you know, it's a very small team. You, you go with the sales guy, you go with the sales engineering, you sell, you do all sorts of stuff. So you get to know to some degree. But, you know, I also read a couple of uh, business books back then. Um, the second thing is the best thing is to leap in a company that you are already in, right? Because you get, you get the chance. Right. Uh, it's very difficult to get a chance in a new company. And you can, you know, you, you have some credit that you've earned because right. you are really good. <clears throat> so before they throw you out, they'll give you right. some, some chances and you can learn and it's easier. Right. There's I no didn't risk. have that. Yeah, there's, there's no, no risk. risk. I didn't have that uh, because, but you know, the person that uh, hired me, he knew me. So he gave me the chance uh -huh. and I learned through How'd that. How'd you know him? Uh, exact Technologies. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, he was, uh, he was my manager back then and um, he brought me into Amdocs and I learned through mostly experience. Uh, I, I mentioned books and a lot of, uh, you know, mentors, uh, people that you talk to that you know they've done, they're doing similar roles and you just, you know, you interview them, you ask them what do you think are the main things or, you know, questions that are relevant at the time and you just learn from experience most of the time. I didn't have any MBA or anything, not that I'm saying it's not a good thing. I'm just saying that most of my experience is reading and, and, ex uh, and experience, not any, um, not any uh, fancy degrees. So let's go straight to your, the mm -hmm. company that you founded. You want to get into business, it's time to build your own, take that software and the business skills, bring it together. Uh, work with people that you had before, which is very good advice. <laughs> so you don't have to <laughs> relearn that relationship while you're trying to get a business off the ground. Um, what do you, what were like, what was, tell us about your product market fit. What were you trying to solve? So when I was in Amdocs, I did a couple of business roles. And uh, during the time, um, one of the people I knew, um, who was my manager, director back then, he asked me, you know what, let's, uh, let's do a startup together. Because I was discussing with him that I want to maybe move into a VP R&D role in a startup, so on and so forth. He said, come on, throw it away. Just let, let's do a startup, me and you, and uh, let's find a, a, an idea and uh -huh. let's do something uh, and just, you know, leave Amdux and so on. And we tried, you know, we tried a couple of ideas. We tried finding uh, some groups. We tried all sorts of stuff um, during the, the time that I was in Amdocs. It didn't go well the first time. So eventually he left and I, um, I joined. I actually worked with CorpDev. The CorpDev is the organization in, in a company which acquires companies and merges into the, to the acquiring company. Uh, I helped them. We did the due diligence on a company. We acquired a startup and I managed and merged it into Amdocs. So it gave me kind of a good experience from the other side. So as an acquiring side versus an acquired side. And that was great experience for me. That was around 2008, something like that. And, um, and after a year or so in that role, uh, we talked again, the person who left the company, my, my, uh, my, my, uh, the person I knew in, in Amdocs, he left the company. We talked again and uh, he said, hey, I have two people that I, that I know from my current gig and let's do a startup together. I have a great idea. 
And that's how Accelo started pretty much. Dude, I wonder that like in other cultures that happens. Like, hey, just leave what you're doing. Let's just do a startup. Yeah. <laughs> like, let, let's go have no income, work yeah. insane hours and just dive into the abyss and figure it out on the way. Exactly. So yeah, that's Israeli culture for yeah. sure. And I can tell you... Uh, wait, wait, did you have any... Wait, how old are you then? Currently, I'm 52. No, then. Was it Back then, it was... Um, so, yeah, I was uh, 37. 38. Okay, mom was my age, 38. And so you... Did you... Were you married with children? Yeah, so I had uh, a wife, two children, and one on the way. Ah, Bishatova. Yeah. And so you... And there was... Did you have to... Uh, sorry to get personal. Did you ask your wife, or how did it work, or you... Should, she didn't yeah, even so know they went to Amdocs. <laughs> the next day he went to a startup. And then suddenly she goes, we have no money. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> no that's, a, that's a really good question. Always ask the wife uh -huh. because, uh, or the partner because it's, sure? uh, otherwise it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> okay. you get into crazy situations. We at the time, think about it, it was the subprime uh, crisis. It right. was a really bad time. Right, it was the quarter four, 2000. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was also, we didn't have a lot of money. We were just mediocre, you know, um, in terms of... Uh, um, how do you say it? Um, in, in terms of uh, the, the money we made, my wife just finished her degree in, in medicine, so mm -hmm. she wasn't earning much. It was a very tough time back then. So obviously, um, asked her, and she she said, "Yeah, um, we always supported each other's uh, for our careers." And I had about a money t um, a year's time worth of money. Mm -hmm. uh, to play with my game called Startup uh -huh. um, and do my thing. Uh -huh. But I had one year. I mean, after that year, I, I had to go back to being mm -hmm. an employee. I didn't have time. So we started the company. Um, any advice for someone that's got, you know, a few kids and a spouse and they need, want to go and take this leap and that uh, maybe what they should tell their spouse or it's just or not tell their spouse? I mean, in terms of tell the spouse, she needs to know that, uh, you know, you need to understand the situation, that there's not going to be any money coming in before you get an investment, that it's going to be tough, that there's down and, and ups, and it's going to be crazy, and you don't really know what's going to happen. And you need to leave money aside because it's irresponsible to just, uh, you know, just do it without having enough money and getting into mm -hmm. problematic financial situations. But other than that, the, uh, you know, you, you both agree to it and you start on the way. I mean... One uh, founder uh, once told me a pretty nice story. He said, uh, creating a startup is like jumping from a, from a building and then uh, trying to find your parachute. Your, down, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, you're, but you you're, really, to, you're really selling entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, but you need to at least have a parachute, right? Otherwise, right, it's geez, really right. stupid. Right, that's a good point, right. Uh, so that's what I did. And luckily, uh, I managed to, to raise funds at some point. Tell us about so you one in your one way of your savings until you had to go and get a job. Um, what was, tell us about going through raising your first round as a first time founder. Yeah, so I was a COO. Um, we had, uh, there's uh, the CEO and two other um, VP R&D and uh, CTO. This was pretty much, uh, we had four founders and all of us were pretty technical. So at the beginning, um, the CTO and the, and the VP R&D, they worked on the product full time. And myself and the CEO, we just looked for customers as much as we want. We, we, How'd we you could. do that? 
Again, connections. Um, let's uh, talk to this guy. Maybe he knows a customer. Hey, let's talk to this guy. He has a company. Maybe he can be our first customer and so on and so forth. And everybody is very helpful. So they lead you into more customers, into more people that could, could get you more customers. That was how it is uh, and how it was back then in 2008. We also created more network um, uh, by joining all sorts of, um, of network events at the time. So I don't know if you've heard, but there was a, an event called Kinernet by Yossi Vardi, which is based on the American Food Camp, which you take very creative people. I didn't know it was based on that. Yeah. You take a lot of creative people and smart people, and you throw them into a camp for a couple of days, and they build crazy stuff. I mean, some of it is already done, and they bring it in. Some of it is created there. But we, we went to all sorts of creator events, to Garage Geeks, um, other startup events, you know, and through that you get a lot of uh, customers or people that can lead you to customers. So that was mostly what I did and the CEO, because back then you couldn't just raise on an idea. You had to have even customers. Um, wow, what a, what a crazy concept. Yeah. You needed revenue <laughs> to get fun. Yeah, so at least customers. I mean, and we, we really, um, we really, it was a really big challenge back then because, again, uh, it was uh, the subprime crisis. We had a lot of, we talked to a lot of investors. No one wanted to fund us. And eventually, around nine months in, almost to the place where I needed to start finding a, a job, we got an investment from Wild Ventures at the time. It right. was uh, it was pretty new back then, and uh, that's how we we basically it was how the happiest day there. It was uh, roughly a million. How did you celebrate? Uh, wow, um, I, I don't think we celebrated much. Just you know, at dinners and such. But right, it was not, like dinner, a bottle of whiskey, and back to work. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that seems to be how it works. Yeah, I mean, what can you do with a million? Even back then, it was it was not a lot of money. Right, right. So, uh, so yeah, lots of hard work, no day, no night. You just do what you need to do to get uh, to, to close customers and to continue mm -hmm. with what you need to do. How many hours uh, a day did you work? Wow. Back then, it was. I don't know. It was between 12 to more. I don't know. 12 to more. Uh, 12 yeah. plus. What was the motivating factor for you? Was it like the fear of having to go back to employment? Was it the excitement of getting around? Was it the fun of the technology that you're working closely with your co-founders and we're like, it was the creation? What, what was it that kept you, what was it that kept you going every single day, not knowing if you're going to get that parachute in time before you hit the ground? Yeah. Good question. So I think that, uh, the, what I did is basically around the, the things that I need to do in order to get the signed customers. So, you know, when you talk to, at the beginning, we talked less with the U.S., but if you need to talk U.S. times, so your day ends at 12 a.m. and sometimes more. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, the preparations, everything you need to do in order to get the stuff done, get the demos done, talk to your co-founders. Um, so you work as much as you need to in order to get um, the stuff done to get to your next milestone. Um, and, uh, and that was, you know, that on top of the fact that I really like working, it's not a, it's right. not a, it's not a torment for me, is uh, what kept me going. I think um, uh, there were times that I worked less, but I'm, uh, I'm kind of a hard worker. Uh, most of my years was the case, at least. So the acquisition, how'd you get acquired? 
Yeah, so uh, we had a really uh, interesting opportunity come our way. So at some point, uh, we decided to hire someone who's going to help us do the sales in the U.S. So we hired a VP sales in Boston. Um, that was, yeah, something around 2010. And we started getting uh, good, good American customers like American Greetings and, and so on. What we did, by the way, in Accelerate is accelerate uh, websites. So if you had a website, it loaded much faster using Cloud and, uh, Accelerate, sorry. And, um, and we started uh, looking and, and talking to customers. During that time, uh, one of the things, so again, the network effect, this guy, he, he was a VP sales in Boston. He used to work in Akamai. And he had a friend who worked in Limelight, which was um, a competing CDN and video delivery platform back then. They talked and they decided that um, Cloudendure would be a good complementary solution for them because they, I don't want to get too technical, but they kind of brought the content closer you, you to the user. Technical. It's, it's called okay. visual tech. So. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, CDNs, they bring the content closer to the user uh, through... Uh, through caching close to the, uh, to the user uh, geographically. And what we did is we manipulated HTMLs and all sorts of uh, things around the, uh, the web to make it faster. So eventually it was a complementary off, uh, mm. offering. So you brought it closer and then you did manipulations to the HTML, which caused like less, like batches, less, uh, or... less pings, less right. back and forth. Um, and uh, How'd you do you that? Know, below the fold, all sorts of stuff like that. How did you manipulate the HTML? We had a we had a reverse proxy which sat close to the um, to the website, and just every every request for the website just went through our reverse proxy and changed and changed uh, the way the HTML was presented. So together with the CDN with Limelight, we could have done it much much better, and we kind of started working on a partnership deal. So, uh, hey, we'll, we're Limelight, we'll sell to many customers with you, we'll sell a joint offering, and we'll give you some kind of rev share or whatever. Mm. And that was the beginning. And at some point... Now, how did they find you or how did you find them? Yeah, so, um, so they found you, they, we found them because our VP sales, as I said, he had a friend in Limelight. He talked to them and he said, hey. I need more friends. We have, yeah. <laughs> I need more friends and I have a great offering for you that can complement your offering. Ah. He, they actually saw it just before our competitor did a pretty big partnership with, with them. Mm. So we caught it just in time. Uh, we went into a POC. We compared head to head. Uh, I went to um, their headquarters in Phoenix, Arizona. I went uh -huh. there. Did a couple of days the POC. It was very successful on one of the newspapers that they uh, that was their customer. Uh, we did it, and the newspaper, you know, it uh, got on the on the website. It got to the user much faster than it used to. And at that point, they understood that we're much better than competitor, and uh, their CEO decided that he wants to uh, do something more than a, in a partnership. So he basically. He uh, invited our CEO to New York to dinner. Uh, and the dinner, he said, you know what? I don't want to do any partnership with you. I want to buy you. So after the acquisition, and at what point did you decide, okay, it's time for me to move on? And you went ahead and you started your new company right away? Or how did you make that? At what point did you say, 
enough? Yeah, so I think that after six months in the acquiring company, I think that I got to the point where I said, okay, uh, it's starting to become boring. I want to do my next stuff. And we kind of talked amongst ourselves, the founders, the four founders, and... All four of you were still there? Yeah. Yeah, all of us were around in a, a year and a half after the acquisition. We decided that uh, we'll stay for a bit just to make sure that everything uh, goes well and transition goes well. But we want to do uh, another, you know, we want to do our next gig. So did you communicate to the company that like, hey, we want to be out of here within six months or whatever and start our own yeah, new thing? What do you need for us to set you up for success? Is that, no, that we did, no, we decided what we need to do in order to get to success. And we communicated only, you know, per the law, which was, I don't know, a month before or wow. a couple of months before. Uh, usually with corporate America, it's not, sometimes it's not wise to give too much of a notice because they, then they do what they want to do and not the right thing necessarily. Right. Oh, God. Yeah, totally so, right. Um, yeah. so we made sure that everything went well. We found, uh, we found you know, uh, a manager who would take um, the, the officer sorry, the office uh, management role and take it from there. We did everything to make it ready and, and, and nice, but uh, I don't remember how much notice we gave, maybe a couple of months, but not too much. Uh-huh, awesome. And, and so then we started- you, How much on the side were you working on your, your new so idea? So we were, were doing kind of weeklies and started uh, thinking about ideas. But like I always like to say to entrepreneurs, uh, you only get really creative when you're you know, in the middle of the pool. Right. If you're in the pool and you, you, you know, you hold it, you don't get really creative. Right. Once we, we got the new idea only um, a couple of weeks after we, we stopped working for uh, Limelight and we started uh, working for ourselves. So in a couple of weeks, we thought about uh, the idea behind uh, Cloud Endure. Uh-huh. And that's how Cloud Endure started. What did Cloud Endure do? And was how much of the decision to start Cloud Endure had to do with, hey, I know this is a problem and I know these people in my network would be interested in buying the solution if we can provide it. Was all that in mind before you went and founded it? No. We, what we had in mind is we get along really well. We're great four founders. Uh-huh. Let's do another thing. Let's ideate and decide, you know, think about ideas, ideate, talk to people, get feedbacks, and then start something. And at some point... Um, one of the co-founders just said, hey, um, I think we should do this, which was the idea for Cloud Endure. We really liked it. We started looking, you know, talking to customers and such and seeing if there is a, a need in the market. We decided, yeah, there is. The idea, by the way, was uh, doing disaster recovery at the time between, mm. uh, between regions of the cloud. So one region of Amazon to another region. Mm. That was the initial idea we started off. Uh-huh. And... Uh, the idea came because one of the co-founders' friends said, hey, my website just crashed in Amazon. If I had a button which would just, uh, you know, revive the, the site again in, in seconds or minutes, and I could continue working instead of b- losing business like I did, that would be amazing. And that was the idea behind uh, so Let's how, Do Cloud So what was the tech like? Tell us about the technology and then how you ended up selling. I guess it makes sense that you were acquired by Amazon. Um, yeah, yeah if you can tell us about I it. mean, it, it made sense. Uh, yeah, but we we a little bit pivoted, but it still made sense, as you said. So the technology was pretty um, 
it's pretty simple to explain. It's, it's pretty complicated, obviously. So what you do is you have servers, right? And um, uh, the servers have the data and the state and everything in databases and, and disks and all that type of stuff. And, um, and they are, I mean, the initial idea was region to region. They are in the cloud right now. And what we did is we basically replicated the disk data from the servers to just storage space in Amazon. So let's say you had three disks in, 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 um, in one region. You just replicated to a similar three disks on the other side. And that's, that's um, continuous replication, which, um, which created the situation where you, you pretty much had a mirror of your data on the one side, on the other side. Now, once you have a disaster, you press a button on the website, uh, sorry, on the, um, on the Cloudendor software, and we create servers on the other side, which will connect to these disks mm. and start working off. Ah, and this is something that, cool. yeah, and it was pretty revolutionary because in minutes you could get the, the, the servers up and running and you just had, uh, you maybe were missing a couple of seconds of, of data and you can just work. Mm -hmm. uh, so disaster recovery became really easy in the cloud mm -hmm. with our solution. Eventually, we found out that there's not a lot of customers that are in the cloud. So we kind of, we kind of broadened our solution to do from anywhere to cloud. You so go. you have on-premise to cloud, Azure to cloud, whatever, you, and from any cloud to any cloud. And we also created another product, which was migration, which was a, a problem back then because enterprises wanted to migrate at least some of their uh, workloads into the cloud. So, so once we had that broad solution, uh, customers came in and uh, we were counting dollars. Awesome. <laughs> like I said, when it came in, you're counting dollars. Yeah. Uh, how much did, how did you get connected to Amazon? I guess they're seeing that you're providing solutions to maybe other enterprises or companies that are using Amazon. And I'm, how did that, who re, how did you get connected with Amazon? Did they find you? Did you find them? No, we found them. So uh, we had a... Were you looking for an acquisition when you approached, when you found them or... Was it just like it makes sense strategically to just speak to them, see what's there? In terms of doing business together, we just we we talked to them and we had a really good partnership with them. They brought us deals, we brought them deals, we used our and we participated in their marketplace. We did a lot of things in Amazon before the acquisition. Eventually, yeah, we had so much business with them uh, that uh, eventually they decided they need some, a solution like that within their ecosystem. And I think uh, there was also an external push by an other cloud providers and, and other contenders which were acquiring uh, our competitors. So it kind of created a push and created a movement of uh, consolidation and, uh, and acquisitions of disaster recovery and more of migration solutions within the market back then. So this brings us uh, to where you are now and where mm -hmm. we are now, Moran, which uh, for people that don't know, we're actually at Nechlat and Imin, so right by the show. Can't wait for lunch. Um, <laughs> how did you get to Meron? How does one go from being a successful entrepreneur who's had two successful exits to entering the VC? I know you said you were an angel investor, but what drew you to Meron? Yeah. Or so, what or what did that draw to you? Because you were added, you you joined as a partner later on. So you touched upon it. So during the four years that I uh, worked in Amazon Web Services after the acquisition, um, outside of work, I started angel investing. Uh, so I invested in um, many companies, more than 20, 
Um, and during that time, some of the companies uh, I got to invest in were, um, were intercepted with Maron Capital. So, ah. I, uh, so we brought, me and my partner, we do the co-investing and we, we do angel investing together. Uh, we brought some of the deals to Maron and Maron brought a couple of, of deals to us. So we co-invested in, in a couple of deals with Maron. So I got to know uh, Liron and Danny and the partners yeah, uh, during that four years. Yeah. Awesome. The second um, process that happened within me is that I wanted to do something which is meaningful. And uh, I kind of honed in on, uh, on uh, climate technologies, which is a very big umbrella for many technologies with, which help with the current situation of the global warming. Uh, I, wanted, I decided I want to do a startup within that phase. And Wait, why? I mean, that's kind of like a leap. Here you're doing software. Right. Like an entire career from the army since like you're 18. Yeah. And now you're like, were you always interested in kind of climate? Was it just the science? Was it, was it more that it's like kind of like a new frontier in a way? No, but at it, the time? Yeah, so it's a good question. I, it's not that I wanted to do climate a long time, but I do like nature for, for ever since I remember yeah. myself. I hike. It's really love nature. Right. I hike, I dive, I do all sorts of stuff within nature. Uh, but also I wanted to do something which is meaningful and not another company, right? Another cyber company, another cloud company. I right. wanted to do something meaningful. And that brought me into climate because I thought, hey, here I can I use my skills as an entrepreneur and the fact that I am technological, although mostly in software, and kind of do something meaningful there. Uh, the big, I, I thought about doing a startup. It's still, uh, it's still uh, relevant uh, and it, it can happen. But during the phase, phase that I did angel investing and thinking about all sorts of stuff, I, I said to myself, the ecosystem here, the climate ecosystem is pretty nascent here in Israel. It's growing, but it's nascent. So I might as well start as a VC and then, you know, do ah. uh, see how it so goes. So in a sense, as a business opportunity, given that you've been on both the side of acquisitions and investing as right. an angel investor, you see there's going to be growth here. I, I like this niche. Let me go into it. Let me start investing to help develop, let's say, the climate tech here in Israel. Right, right. And you, and so kind you're, of able to be, you're able to make good money from it, which is great. Bring people together and help ele elevate the... The, the, the industry, the ecosystem of specific exactly. climate tech. Exactly. Fascinating. I it love that. It seemed a great segue for me. Awesome. I love the, I love the mix of kind of like, how can I use kind of a, a money, capitalism, free market, and help younger people using something I'm passionate about, and let's develop something here. I see a lot of this, actually, in general. Mm -hmm. just people are trying to like, in Israel, uh, trying to take things that they love that are underdeveloped and bring it here. So you know, I met the person trying to bring like baseball to Israel right. as an example, and just kind of like, and I love that, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing that everyone kind of sees like, what can I do and really bring it to the Israeli, uh, the Israeli uh, ecosystem or the Israeli culture. Right. So how did you, so you guys were working together and then they're like, they reached out to you, you reached out to them. How did it, tell me about how did this, I want to, I want, I want to be able to kind of understand how this relationship works when someone is asked to be joined as a partner to join on as a partner, how that works out. So I, um, I worked, I talked to a couple of venture capitalists and venture firms, and um, I wanted to find a, um, a VC that, um, that has, uh, that answers some of my, uh, you know, uh, requirements, which is something that can do climate, and I can lead the climate or join something climate. Uh, it has to be a generalistic uh, fund because Israel doesn't have enough ecosystem to just be a climate fund unless it's very, very, you know, uh, a very small amount. 
And I wanted people that I really like, which is, uh, I knew them again. I knew them for four or five years, so that fit well. And I, during the talks, uh, they said, yeah, why don't you join us? And I said, yeah, it's great. And, you know, we did some dancing around and eventually married. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Love it. Great. So um, they brought you on having climate tech in mind, or is it once you were on, then you decided to move into climate tech? No, I... I looked for a fund that is willing for me to invest in climate. Got or at it. least okay. most of my role in climate. So when you negotiated you yeah. becoming a partner, yeah. uh, this was obviously a core component. Yeah, is that exactly. We want a fund specifically. That yeah, I otherwise it's just climate. being a VC, which I didn't want. It was just a nut. Right. And by the way, I do like the fact that I'm helping out in other deals, which are more in my core competencies. Oh, right. I'm sure that was a big plus the, the for that. Tw- you know, the... The time that I spend there is both fun and very useful because I'm there. I'm an expert in climate. I'm only beginning, right? Right. Well, no one's so, really an expert. In climate, so it's fun. So beginning mix. Yeah, no one's an expert, but there are people that are more experts. Right. I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. It takes time to create uh, right. experience and expertise in uh-huh. in a field. So yeah. Awesome. So I'm starting to learn. Okay. So when you go and you look to in how much has uh, does your fund have the climate tech fund? So we, uh, we are a $55 million fund, and we are pretty much in the middle or two-thirds of the uh, fund right now. Awesome. But there's no limit to how much I can spend, uh, I mean, on climate. So as long as I have climate really good companies, it's fine. Right. They compete with other domains. So what do you do to make yourself more attractive um, for your fund, for, for someone, let's say, for other VCs that are watching or aspiring VCs, and you want to put a fund together? What do you do to make yourself attractive? And obviously, a track record is important, right? Yeah. Um, so, what it, it tells us, like, what can you do to make yourself attractive to raise money for a fund? So, I think track record is probably the, the most important by far. So, Meron, for example, has two funds already. So, if you look at the portfolio, you can, I mean, uh, funds generally don't publish their performance, but you can look at the portfolio and see. The company. So if you see a really good company, you say, okay, this is probably a good fund. If you see crappy or, or companies that you don't know, that's one thing. The second thing is really uh, about um, reputation, right? Because the Israeli market especially is very small. So we believe in, uh, we're four, four founders, right? I myself as an entrepreneur, I, I care about founders. I want them to, to help them and for them to do the right thing. And we help them basically. So if you treat the founders right and you do it, um, uh, you do it uh, with all your, we, we help our companies. I have oper- operational background, so I can help the companies with, with all my experience, go to market and all sorts of stuff. You help them, you treat them right, then the reputation precedes yourself and people hear, yeah, Meron Capital is a really good fund. Then there's the portfolio, which I mentioned. And that's basically it. I mean, you have both of these uh, people who want to fund in you and people who want to take money from you. So since your fund's not yet complete, that means therefore you haven't distributed any capital. You haven't done no, any no, no. It was complete. Oh, I'm saying that deployment-wise, we're in two thirds. Oh, oh, you've de- deployed two thirds. Yeah, we we've deployed the first fund. The second fund we've deployed about two thirds, something like that. And so, well, who have you who have you guys invested in in uh, the climate tech space, and why did you choose to invest in them? So, climate is uh, is we only started nine months ago. So, I have currently. Um, a company that I'm going to invest in. This year was very, very bad for investments. Yes. Uh, and I'm still not at liberty to disclose the name. You'll probably hear it in the next few weeks. Uh-huh. Uh, but I am... They're uh, in Israel? 
Yeah, they're in Israel. And what is it? Where are you coming in? Are you coming in early stage? Like where are you coming in for investment? Seed? Where are you? It's, it's seed. Uh-huh. Meron Capital invests in pre-seed and seed. Uh, checks, uh, checks are from half a million up to three million. That's our Very nice. sweet spot. And that's where we invest. Um, we also have one uh, very large and successful uh, climate company, which is called Solugen in First Fund, but that was that was just uh, a good investment, not not related to the CSIS at that time. They didn't have climate. What are you looking for in climate technology when you're thinking about investing? Obviously, the individual, the personality, obviously, there needs to be a fit, you know, the work ethic is very important. How much of that and how much is the actual technology itself um, or before you go out you're like i really want to fall look into technology that let's say cleans up the ocean or carbon capture or you know reusable water i'm just curious like where do you where where do you have a specific passion or maybe where you think there's a specific greater opportunity for a turn within a certain niche within climate tech i'm just curious how you make those decisions yeah so the first and most important thing is that it has to make sense from a VC perspective and it has to make money for the LPs and so on. So we cannot compromise there. So right. it has to be a really great team, as I said earlier. It has to be a big, um, a big market. It has to be a really good product. And we need to believe that this team can make it and execute. Not execute only on the product, but execute on the market. And it's much more difficult in climate than in other fields. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the preliminary requirement. The second thing is that the domain itself. So I'm not very picky in what domains uh, I'm going to invest in. If it, if, it, uh, if it is a climate domain and it has all the other um, prerequisites, which I mentioned earlier, it's fine. If you're asking about um, my passion, nature-based solutions is what I like most of things around nature. So agri-tech, and uh, biodiversity and these kinds of fields, but it's very difficult to find really big companies or companies that we feel are going to be really big there. Uh Um, Why? Why? Just some of it, biodiversity is only, is very nascent. Right. Uh, Agriculture, in Israel at least, uh, most of the companies didn't really grow, um, and uh, there there is not a lot of big acquisitions there. Where do you think are the biggest opportunities in climate tech? What so what I what I look in um, mostly these days are around energy. I think in energy it could be really big, and I think that one of our biggest um, one of our biggest startups in the world of climate is right is Solar Edge. Right. Um, so um, that's a multi billion dollar company right now on Nasdaq, um, and. Um, and I think in energy, there are very interesting things that are going. If you take really wild ones, there is a company in fusion. Uh, nuclear fusion. Nuclear yeah, fusion. Yeah, I think, I think nu- nuclear is crazy. The, clearly the future in yeah. energy, right? Yeah, I feel like that's very... Everything we've discussed, because I feel like nuclear fourth generation fusion is just... It's amazing. It's clean. It takes up no space. Uh, it's not what people think when it comes to, you know, it's dangerous and all of that. And the, yeah, waste, fusion is the not, waste, waste can now be reused. They say, and I was, I, was, uh, I was reading about it, and they were saying, in your lifetime right now, nuclear fusion, the entire waste of your entire life in nuclear waste, of all the energy that you're going to consume as a Westerner, is smaller than the volume of a can of Coke, than a, than a soda wow. can. And they're saying it's getting smaller. And now they're using ways to 
reuse that waste on spot. And so it's kind of, you know, like you could take the, you can bury it with you. <laughs> yeah, <Okay>. but, <laughs> but, but fusion is really, 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 really early. Yeah. Still, but do you, do you really see fusion. like in a generation from now, there's like, it seems like it's the, no, because it's got zero emissions. It's 100% clean. It takes up the least land. It's economically the most viable. It feels like it, it checks all the boxes, no? It is, but it's still uh, experiment in experimentation stage. Right. So there's a lot of companies trying to do it. There's only one in Israel I know. What company? It's called Entitao. Uh -huh. um, but in the U.S. there's more, and in yeah, Europe yeah. and so on. Yeah, France is big on France. But there. yeah, but it's still very. It's ex it's an experiment at this point. There's uh -huh. no really. We don't know when it's going to be production grade. I would say. Right. So this is still early. There's a, the regular nuclear, you know, um, plants and small ones that are used to can create uh, energy, but then there is safety and security, right? Right. Especially in a country like this. Right. Um, and there's a lot of things in energy that can be interesting. There is, um, so in Israel at least, this is something I see. Food tech is a little bit less hype these days, but we still see things in the food uh, you know, cultivated meats and all sorts of What happened stuff. to that? I feel like that whole industry went away. Almost like vegetarianism yeah. and veganism is like a fad. That's my, as I, as I feel like, you I don't know, know, and also I think they hyped it so much and then I tried the Impossible Burger and it wasn't all that. Yeah, I think yeah, it I was very, very I hyped. I Our Crowd Summit a few years ago and they were like, it was hyped and everyone wanted to try it. And so people were like, it was a huge line. And um, it was impossible, or one of those beyond me. One of them. It doesn't matter which one. And it just, the whole trash can was one bite. <laughs> a giant. That's all I needed to know. I'm like, okay, this is not right either. Yeah, it it, it was pretty hyped, and it's not as good as the, as they thought. There's still a lot of work there. Right. I don't think it's going away, but it's not as no. I don't think so either. There's always going to be yeah. And um, is there a lot of hype? Do you think there's a lot of hype in in in, in, uh, in climate tech or environment tech and green tech? I feel like more than other technologies, there's a lot more hype. Look, and I think because it's like I see a lot of videos of like, look at because like the clean, because people get everyone, far more people can relate, I think, to climate tech than like other technologies. Everyone goes outside. Everyone experiences climate or weather. Those two different things, obviously. Everyone experiences nature. Everyone's seen litter. Everyone's seen trash. Everyone's seen pollution. So we've all things that every human being has consumed to understand these things. And I think the video, the visual effect of, you know, you know, it's a, save the turtles, plastic, whatever, it's much more compelling. And then when it comes to the technology or whatever it is, I feel like it, it was not quite there. So I think that uh, there was a hype even in Israel back in 2021, 2022. Now, obviously, because of the war and the situation in Israel, it's less. Yeah. Uh, you know, when things are really crazy, you tend to look less on things which are not really burning right now. Right. There's still uh, interest there. There's still it's still growing and so on and so forth. But it's not as crazy as it was in 21. And, and 21 was crazy in all domains. Right. right. But uh, so uh, so it's it's uh, it's growing. It's still not as big as I would like to see. And we have a lot of work to do on the ecosystem here and and make it grow. So that's what we're trying to do. So because green technology is, let's say, relatively new or rapidly developing, maturing, becoming more efficient. So mm -hmm. I, uh, I have a friend, he, he put solar panels up on his roof. And in Israel, you have to. Uh, he's, he's in California. And he said, he, so he got a mortgage on his house. So he's got 30 years living in his home. And he's like, all right, let me, let's make that investment now. I'll make that ROI in eight years, he said, right? 
Uh, but what he ended up doing, he actually waited a few years. And the technology of the solar panels he put on his roof gave him more ROI, saved more energy, and better for the environment because he actually used regular electricity, which is probably coal. Um, yeah. And so it was actually better for the environment and more economical because he waited for the technology to roll out. I found this to be very fascinating. The question is, is it possible that not just economically, but also for environmental purposes, we're jumping into technologies that are not quite ready, that are green, and we might think in the short term it's good, we're paying through the nose, but actually if we if we wait a little bit longer, it will be, obviously will be more economical, everyone agrees on that, but it may also be better for the environment. What are your thoughts? Yeah, but it's, you know, it, you cannot really predict. I mean, the way that we make headways in technology is we try things, there are the, uh, the early adopters right. and so on and so forth, and eventually we make things better. But uh -huh. if nobody uses it and waits till there's, if there's no early adopters, there's uh -huh. not going to be any mature technology. Uh -huh. So maybe, you know, maybe retrospectively, you could have done some things like that to save the environment or maybe make more money. But um, I think that you just can go ahead. Once you have something which is ready enough, there's going to be the early adopters, which are more experimental and they're, They'll take things earlier, and there's going to be uh, the the more conservatives. They're going to take it later, but it's fine. That's how technology evolves. I don't think we should wait for anything. I think we should just. I mean, again, there are certain points and certain specifics where you wait, but there's a lot of things you just do, and you know, technology evolves. Mm -hmm. That's a nice thing. Do you think? Uh, where do you think? Like in 10, 20 years, let's say in twenty, it's twenty twenty four now. So like twenty forty five. Where do you think we'll see the biggest changes in all of climate tech? You think that we'll see will be the biggest leaps in our lives? How it will be energy, agriculture, maybe the price of agriculture will drop because it'll be far more efficient. We'll use robots instead of people. Where do you think we'll be able to see the biggest changes? Um, I think we'll do a lot of, of of all domains. I don't think it's one thing. I mean, uh, there's a lot of uh, things we need to do in order to make sure that the the temperature doesn't rise mm -hmm. on the one hand. On the other hand, mitigation technologies will always will also get set in because we're probably not going to be able to do the one and a half degrees that we were always discussing. So we'll have to do we'll have to create a lot of technologies that mitigate with extreme heat, with mm -hmm. uh, droughts, droughts and uh, extreme weather, and so on and so forth. So there's going to be uh, technologies on all sides going. Uh, Further and the more you know, the more we have uh, crazy crises and uh, you know ex extreme weather's and all sorts of stuff like that. The more the government will have to you know create situations where uh, companies will be able to innovate, right? Because for example, Israel does not encourage too much climate technologies at this point because it doesn't seem to think that it's the most important thing right now to to uh, to accelerate. Uh, in the U.S. and in Europe, it's much more advanced, and they have grants. They have uh, all sorts of monies that are going into to, to do things in climate and credits, tax credits uh -huh. in the U.S. We'll have to do it here in Israel. We'll have to do it all over the world. And um, on the other hand, uh, there will be more technologies because I see more and more companies doing uh, very cool things in, in climate and it's all around. I don't think it's only energy right. or only agriculture or only biodiversity or only food. It's all around. Do you think, this is just, this is my weird opinions. Do you think that maybe like if the government's less involved and therefore you have to be more resourceful and the way to really succeed 
isn't by grants or subsidies, but rather getting to uh, manufacturing scale, economies of scale, and making it more economically viable, which means the company will be here for a very long time. Don't you think that there's actually maybe an advantage of not taking government money? In the sense, it's corporate welfare. Yeah, it is. But it's usually, not usually, but sometimes it helps that you have uh, this, uh, as you said, government welfare at the beginning, and then we evolve from there. Mm -hmm. There's also going to be private sector. I mean, there's a lot of private sector anyway. Yeah. I'm just saying that right. the there's, fact there's that... There's <laughs> Yeah. But I'm just saying that the government also helps is, you know, it helps... Uh, Create the first layer, and then at some point it will be only economical. We don't right. need the government anymore. Right. But it's not there any, yet. Uh -huh. Yet, uh, there are things that are. Uh, but think about it. it: it costs much more money to do aviation fuel right now, yeah. uh, sustainable aviation fuel, than regular aviation fuel. Right. If you don't help somewhat, then there won't be incentives to create the first products, right. which are going to be a little bit more expensive. Don't you think about all aviation uh, was going to be electric anyway soon? Don't you think? There's electric, there's, you can't fly a plane like 20 hours with electric, right? Right, right. So it's okay. going to be... So uh, forget Australia. <laughs> yeah, you could do very, very quick um, or very short rounds you could do with uh, electric planes. But the, the long hauls are going to be sustainable, sustainable aviation fuels or uh -huh. stuff like that. So how do you create these? The, um, you know, th there's a lot of uh, interesting technologies that came out of government that eventually we are using now. Internet is an example. So same thing with, with climate. We need, to, we need to encourage it, government, public sector, VCs, everything together. At some point, it will be a, a, a flourishing business. But currently, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of experimentation. And a lot of things are still not, not to the point that they can compare with the regular, uh, you know, regular products, which are not climate friendly. Amazing. Lovely. Well, so where do you think we'll be able to see uh, Meron and specifically what you're doing at Climate Tech in a couple of years from now? And what's the best way for people to stay up to date as climate technology and Meron continues to uh, evolve and adapt and continue to distribute the capital? Yeah. So um, uh, as I said, we're probably going to announce our first uh, climate investment in a few weeks. Amazing. And hopefully we'll have a couple of these every um, uh, every year and so uh -huh. on, and um, and it's going to be a big chunk of Meron is what I what I awesome. see. Um, yeah, and uh, you can follow Meron and awesome. Uh, I've actually I'm going to ask you for a favor. Yeah, what do you think as Israel Tech continues to develop as a brand that after you make this announcement, we'll do it virtually, let's say, to just what could do like a short like five ten minute interview to kind of see like just you and the founder. And to kind of just to elevate you guys, just to put it on Israel Tech's social media channel. Just something you think that would be that would interest you? Yeah, that would be great. Awesome, great. If people want to know uh, where's the best ways to follow you and Maron, where if they want to stay up to date on what you're up to, other than I guess Maron's website. Yeah. So outside of Maron's website, we're also um, on Facebook. Uh huh. And LinkedIn. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Right, and we'll put all those links in the description, as well as Israel Tech's links. Uh, thank you for following, and thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, it was great.